This recording was made on Bundjalung Country, Byron Shire, New South Wales. It's the only way that you can describe what a person is, describe what they do. There doesn't seem to be much job satisfaction or pleasure in this picture. G'day, good morning, good morning, or good afternoon maybe, or maybe even good evening. The thing is, I have no idea what time you're hitting play on this podcast. I've got no idea what your audio proclivities are. I don't know when you prefer most to listen to the bodiless voices of people like myself in your ears, but whatever time it is, hello, g'day. Thank you for hitting play and for joining me for another conversation of self-talk. This one is, I say this every week actually, and it's going to start losing some impact, but such is my enthusiasm and gratitude for having these conversations because this is another one that I found so illuminating and so electrifying actually is the word I'm going to choose because it really left me walking away just absolutely charged and buzzing from the things that I had learnt and from the good fortune that I have to have a platform to have a conversation like the one you're about to listen to. The thing is, actually, before I introduce the topic and um, and my guests, guests, I don't like calling them my guests because that infers that I'm doing them a favour or offering them hospitality when in fact I feel like everyone who talks to me is doing me a favour. Anyway, the thing I want to introduce before we dive into this chat is this whole idea that we allocate specific times in our calendars to talk about specific things. And this idea is something that I'm kind of not wrestling with because I'm not in, I don't feel like I'm struggling with it, but I haven't reconciled it as this neat and tidy thing in my brain that I'm perfectly satisfied with. And what I'm referring to is things like NADOC week, being a specific week where we celebrate Indigenous culture, we acknowledge the always was, always will be, and that kind of thing. And it's the same as Are You OK Day, which was one of the first times I actually thought about this properly and realised like, okay, if we've just got one day in the calendar where we look at each other and ask each other where we're, whether we're okay, is that maybe coming at the expense of having that conversation on another day? Uh, we may be excluding that from our everyday because we've allocated this one specific event to talk about that specific agenda item. And don't get me wrong, I don't disagree with this at all. In fact, I love it because these are important things. Mental health and Indigenous reconciliation are essential to have in our diaries, to be able to have a dedicated time and to make sure that we don't not discuss these very important things. But it kind of just like makes me wonder whether we are potentially handbreaking those conversations proceeding beyond what we've identified as the appropriate time in our diaries to talk about them. Does that make sense? Maybe not. This is very deep cynicism, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, NADOC week is an incredibly important part of our calendar here in Australia. We need as much time and energy going towards reconciliation efforts and cultural sensitivity as we can get. But the thing is, it shouldn't just end at the end of the week. It shouldn't begin and end in the space of seven days. This needs to be something that is at the forefront of our minds all of the time because that's how big the problem is. That's how much work we have ahead of us to heal this genocide and to repair the cultural divide between Indigenous and colonial Australia. It's not going to happen if we just relegate it to one week. So as great as NADOC is, 
This is a thing that I was chatting about with Kiralee and Nadala, who both expressed a similar sentiment in saying that because of their Indigenous heritage, they suddenly feel a lot more popular for one week out of the 52 in the year. And it's almost like this, it's got an ugly element to it where it's almost propagating the tokenism. And the funny thing is, I just happened to be in town and hit them both up about two or three weeks ago, realizing, oh, I'm actually going to be in Byron. That's where they hang. Cool. Hopefully we can sit down and have another chat. Having begun this dialogue last year and only after doing that did I realize like, oh, actually what we've ended up putting in our schedules is going to be in the middle of NADOC week. So it's kind of ironic, but it's also culturally relevant and it's a great thing to be able to release this podcast for you to listen to at the end of NADOC week and also have it there to be able to listen to in the other 51 weeks. So anyway, the chat that you're about to listen to is big. There's no getting around it. I feel I feel a real mixture of things about positioning myself to have these talks because I'm so hyper aware of being the most privileged human being that you will ever meet. And I don't want it to appear like I care about this issue recreationally because that's that's the cost of privilege is that when you don't actually have to live a social burden, the help that you might feel like offering can often seem kind of insulting because it's not something you have to go to bed with every night. You can pick up and put down the issue if you want to. So I'm always aware of that. But then I'm also feeling a responsibility to ha- to acknowledge that and to try and start moving forward. So I'm so grateful to Kiralee and Nadala for giving me the platform to have this conversation and for granting me the concession that I'm not out to do anything except broaden the channels of communication about the issue and just try and increase the sensitivity about it. It's so hard to know how to help. If those of us like me who are outside the issue can share our appreciation and our understanding of it amongst ourselves rather than burdening the explanation process upon those who are suffering the problem. That might not have made sense, but hopefully it will by the end of this conversation. Let's just dive right into it. I've rambled far too long already. I always manage to do that. So once again, my humblest thanks to Nadala Barker and Kiralee Lowcock for giving me the opportunity to have this chat, to ask the questions in the way that I could. There are so many golden nuggets of wisdom that are about to enter your ears from these two powerful women So I hope that they enlighten you as much as they did me and that you enjoy this conversation and take something away from it. See you at the end. I think there was, there was some effect. I think the most, in terms of health, it wasn't so big of a deal, even though technically we were a hotspot. But um, I mean, in my lifestyle anyway, I didn't feel it. The cafes all closed. And that was a really, really big deal for a lot of people because most people around here work off hospo and off tourism. So that kind of really affected a lot of people's employment. And then, as you said, there's been like a massive, you know, like urban exile. And we have like fully, we have 7,200 new residents as of March. How how many? 7,200 is the number that I saw the other day. That's so much for a town that's not that big. Like it's well known, but... And a lot of the locals have been completely priced out, which has been like 
kind of insane. Yeah, like even just looking on like the Facebook pages for renting homes, which is like, I don't know, it's a small place, so maybe it's kind of rootsy, but that is how you find a house here like, yeah, often. Yeah. And they were like, <clears throat> like, should we close it for like locals only or people who've already lived here? Because so many people, like especially parents and single moms, and there are a lot of single moms up here, we just like can't find a house. Owners want to sell after so many years because now the price has gone up so much. Like there's a full-on housing crisis, and but it's pretty like yeah. it's pretty <laughs> ironic because Byron Bay cops it quite a bit for being a very gentrified area, and it's like there's a second wave of over gentrification. It's like gentrification level two. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of people, you know, myself included, fled the city a while back and just moved here for a specific lifestyle but it kind of feels like this new wave is really shifting the vibe particularly around where I live mm. I live out past Bangalore and in Bangalore like I see two to three Teslas a day really yeah, yeah. it's that like the housing is so expensive the people mm -hmm. look different it sounds different and the whole dynamic has changed in the town and I suppose it's kind of it's kind of like a fun look at ourselves because that's what we would have done for the people beforehand yeah. as well wow, when we moved here yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. been done to us yeah. and it's kind of like what's going to be done onto them and it's like we actually do have to share space and I'm constantly having this conversation with my landlord who's amazing. She's 71, her name is Pam. She has looked after cattle her entire life. I yes. absolutely adore her and she's just Aussie Oka as they come and she's like you're either born in the city, you were born in the country. Okay, cool. But we've talked a lot about sharing space and about what that looks like. And I was like, Pam, you have 176 acres that you have because your family has sure occupied it since Haters Hill was here, but they stole it. And she's like, we bought it acre by acre. And I was like, no, you stole it acre by acre, <laughs> which now we can joke about, but so spot. And she has this humongous kind of space which she doesn't want to share mm. because she doesn't want things to change. And I'm like, but things are going to change and we're all going to have to learn to share. So it's like, how do we navigate that? Mm. And like sharing in a meaningful way where we're actually collaborating with each other rather than creating these pockets of like, these 7,200 people, I was like, where are they? I don't see them. And it's like, well, actually it's because I've functioned in my echo chambers. And then I went yeah. to Byron the other night to watch a show for like a friend was doing a show in town. And I got there and I was like, I do not recognize a single person here. Mm. Like no one. And the streets, nothing. Yeah. It was so weird. And I think we're just hyper feeling it because it's all been at once. You know, what might have come in like drips and drabs over like a couple years feels like it's hit in like the space of a month. You yeah. Know? 100%. Is it quite like that? I feel like immediately there's this thing in surfing where like I know that everyone on the planet would be a better person if they all surf, but I don't really want to share any more waves with any more people uh -huh. than are already out there. But it's kind of like Byron Bay attracts people for the lifestyle that you guys chased after as well, saying you fled the city. Yeah. Like that's yeah. a serious verb to choose and I completely yeah. appreciate how you're framing it, but it's to run after this one thing and it's kind of like, that's such an interesting test of grace to like need to forgive people for thinking the same thing. But mm -hmm. it sounds like there's been a real loss of um, kind of common courtesy. And what it is that you're chasing, and I think like surfing's a great example because if you go to break anywhere, locals get priority yeah right like yeah. if you're a guest you're a guest and you act as a guest until you develop roots in that space until right? you're invited to develop exactly roots. yeah yeah exactly and i think that's the big thing that's kind of happened because probably it's so many people at once it's yeah. like 
when you just move with, and I was having a conversation with someone the other day, just, they were sitting down next to me and they were talking about something, so I put my two cents in. And they are like, yeah, me and 10 friends moved here. 11 of them moved here at the yeah. same time. And I'm like, and then this whole time they haven't met anyone else. Well, they haven't needed to because they've just imported all of their community exactly. with them. Yeah, so yeah. So what is it that you're chasing? And are you chasing huge, actually something yes. different or are you just chasing the same life somewhere different? A better Instagram feature and yeah. Yeah, and when you have all these new people come like all at once, it's like lots of like babies or like fledglings running around too who yeah. don't know the community, who don't mm. have roots yeah. So everyone's also just finding their way as well. Like yeah. I think a lot of people will leave after a while because I think it's also like really reactive why people move up here, mm. you know, and if they do want to bring all their community in. Some for, you know, like for some people, they like the city and like lots of busy things, and then you'll yeah. realize, like, oh, that's not here, especially if things like start to become yeah. more like whatever normal is again. Mm. And I think that's where the line is between like immigration and colonization, right? Like, are you moving somewhere to become a part of that community, or are you moving somewhere to take that place and, and make it your own? It. Yeah. And I think that's like. I mean, has always been the line in Australian and history, the, obviously. Yeah, and it's entitlement too. Mm. It's like I have the money, so therefore I should be able to move to this small, beautiful place, and because I have the money to do so and the yeah. means to do so, therefore I can. Yeah. Some of the architecture around Watergoes and Belongil and stuff is just like I've been just cruising along on my bike, just feeling like I'm riding through a magazine because there's just this so it's much Malibu's bleached wood and like crazy dark steel finishes, and it's like it's kind of jaw dropping from an architectural perspective, but it's also just seems out of character to like the. Have you gone through Bangalore lately? No. So friends of mine who like I've got quite a few friends who are you know like carpenters and builders, they have never had as much work as since March. Really. Ever. Because people came up here and bought up these old houses and have been renovating them the whole yeah. time. And this one friend in particular, he worked for a company and the boss just flat out refused to do this one job because he was like, no, I'm not building this. Like this is a beautiful old Bangalore house and this guy just wanted to like have these like feature concrete walls and he's like, nope, not a chance. <laughs> We're awesome. not doing it. No. Nah. But someone yeah. else did it, but it's like there's a real, real change, and even in the last two in years, the it's industrial kind of been like estate, like people, like you know, the industrial estate was really like rootsy artists, like, and you know, my partner's mum has a place in the industrial estate. She's an artist, and then like just the the, the um, warehouses around her have gone from people living in there like that to now like somebody just renting it out just to put their fancy cars in. Mm. and using it as a big garage, you know? Yeah. So like the, the, the soul of the places is... Is that right? There's actually places where people just treat it as a... Well, this one in particular, yeah. That like, is insane. You know, renting it as a storage well. facility. And there used to be, you know, a guy living in it for a long time. So it's just... But but yeah, again, like Nini said, like I'm not from here. I don't really feel like I'm the person to be speaking about Byron either, you know? Yeah, I've only enough. been here two years. like. Like just made it before this big. We have this you know? interesting position where it's like we grew up on colonized land as colonized people, but also as the colonizer. And then I'm also an immigrant. Where the colonizers and, and the exactly, colonized. and I have immigrated. And it's like, where is that line for us? Like, mm. where? How do you occupy space in a respectful way? I suppose it's like. Mm. Well, that's thing. what we were talking about the other day, because we were saying, like, I'm a Bakanji woman by my indigenous roots. I'm Jogun. You're Jogun. We're on Banjalan country here, so we're both guests here as well, even though we're indigenous women. 
we're both guests here too and we're talking about like how do we respectfully walk on this land as guests yeah can in I, the same way that anybody has yeah. to you know? can i ask what's the feeling like <coughs> when you're back on your country is, do you notice like a very palpable change in your countenance when you use it like a because obviously i have zero indigenous heritage and i'm really fascinated by the change in countenance that you might feel i think for me there is quite a very distinct change but i have the immense privilege of being from an Aboriginal line that has been unbrokenly on country, which is not something that a lot of Aboriginal groups around Australia have had because of colonisation, because they've been sent to a lot of different places. So I think the link and the connection that I have is very, very strong because it has been kept for me, which means that that's kind of the feeling that I get is that Mm. I need to make sure that it's kept for those who come after. Mm. But it's not this, you know, like romanticised fairy kind of like, oh, this is where I belong. It's you know, this is where I owe my responsibility to. Yeah. This is where wow. my body was made for me and gifted to me. This is where my soul came through the earth and into my body. Like, this is a space that I owe an immense amount of respect to and have an immense responsibility for. Yeah, it's not thing. like... That's amazing. It's not... Yeah. And I think that's it. It's not like, oh, I'm here and I feel good and... You know, we often talk about the importance of being on country and I think a lot of people misconstrued that as like, oh, because that's somewhere where you feel good when you're mental health. It's like, no, that's because I think for a lot of people who, like Aboriginal people in the same lines as me, who have had continuous occupancy, it's a space where you have very clear sense of what your responsibility is and of the direction you're going. Mm. Sense of purpose. I think Mm. that's how like all the mental health stuff gets affected as well. Yeah. That's so, I've never um, thought of it quite like that before, but that makes perfect sense now that you've said it, that being on country is more about the responsibility you feel rather than the right that you feel yeah. attached to it. Yeah, that- and there there's really isn't a question of right. Yeah. And I think that's the big, the big, big difference between, you know, I don't know if, like I suppose the whole colonizing mindset is that it's like I have a right to be mm. here. Mm. I have a right to make this place my own rather than This is mine. I have the privilege of being hosted here. How do I make it worth the I time contribute? of the place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. how do you show gratitude to the land for having you rather than the other way around? Mm. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, then understanding that. the rules of different things is hard because you know, like we were talking about this the other day about living here and immigrating here as Aboriginal women from our own countries. And it's like, well, you walk into someone's house, you've got to learn their rules before you can like be comfortable and you just got to watch how people do it. Like you don't just rock up in some random person's house and like pull your shoes off and like lay on the couch and make yourself a sandwich. Like you observe how other people do it and then you kind mm. of, yeah. Mm. And you don't just take shit from their house. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you like, don't, oh, and you don't walk in and take just pick up someone's auntie and walk off with their auntie and be like, yeah. I'm going to take you home. <laughs> yeah. Which would be, you know, what people do when they treat animals and plants in really, like... Yeah. Yeah. But it, was it called, like, consumptive ways where they're just yeah. like, I have a right to everything. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So since I last spoke to you, both, that whole, this whole landscape has changed a lot in, like, 18 months' time as far as all of the Black Lives Matter mm. protesting around the world and the politicisation that's gone on with it. 
Yeah. Um, and then also, I feel like Australia's had its, from where I've observed it anyway, Australia's sort of had its own um, come to come to Jesus moment, I suppose, of mm. like, holy shit, this isn't something we're watching in America. This is something we need to account for in our own country with black deaths in custody, and just how how much unspoken divide is still between us. Mm. Do you guys feel like that's been like a um, has there been constructive progress in that, or do you think that this is just like us realizing how much work we have ahead of us? I think it's the latter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like here we had the protest. We had, I think, five to six thousand people show up. Wow. Which is huge considering the For Byron, that's huge. Yeah. yeah. Like the police thought at first that we were going to walk along the footpath. Um, I mean, not just the police, like the organisers, like we all thought, we'll just walk along the footpath and um, go to the um, front of the police station. And then because there were so many thousands of people, the police were like, okay, we have to shut down the streets and we'll do it on the street, which is like what they also did for the climate change march, you know? Mm -hmm. So it got that, that kind of number, but it's like, this has been going on since colonisation and like, Average people have been speaking to it since then as well, but then obviously like we're so influenced by the US that something happens there and then it's kind of like, oh yeah, you know, so we definitely yeah. saw like... It's kind of embarrassing in that respect, isn't it? To yeah. need some sort of sensationalised yeah. US event. Yeah, yeah. But, but the other thing is too, like we always say, you know, that it's, you know, 443, I think it is now, deaths in custody, but it's since the 1991 Royal Commission. You know, that's, that's mm. just since mm. then. That's mm. not the total number of deaths in custody. It's also not the total number of lives lost to colonisation either. Mm. That doesn't include people lost in massacres. It doesn't include people lost to mental health. It doesn't include people lost to violence. You know, like there's, there's so many things. And like it's actually... And it's people also who are still alive, and I think like for me, one of my brothers is a beautiful example, is that, you know, he's alive, he's here, but his life was taken away by structural violence, by racism. Yeah. Because, you know, like he got put in prison the first time when he was 15 years old to make an example out of him because he stole a Coke can at a movie cinema. Mm. You know, and it's like, came out and he was in debt. You get to take the fall for other people and he's been in and out of prison since because this one judge who was new to the Kimberley was like, we're going to make an example out of him. Right. And now he's just gotten 38 years in prison because he's come out and he has no humanity left in him and he doesn't understand what's right and wrong because He's 36 now, and since the age of 15, he's spent eight years out of prison. Yeah. Because he stole a coke can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like that kind of situation. Like, yeah. we, we don't account for that in those yeah. numbers, and it's like you can take away someone's life without physically killing them as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's still very much, very, very present yeah. in Indigenous reality. Yeah. And I think so for the me, number is just so much bigger. So than much that. bigger. You can take away someone's life without killing them. That is an insane sentence. Wow. Yeah, like it's... And you know, it's not just then that person, like with Raimi, it's... It's not just Raimi, it's also like the people he's hurt. It's right. also us. It's also, you know, now my family is in shame, so we've all had to move away because of that. And it's like, we're now separated from country because of that. And there's like, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that comes along with it. And it's like, that's what we mean when we talk about structural violence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a physical blow for it to be just absolutely devastating for the entire community. Mm. And I think that when like this protest that happened in Byron, I that was such a strong day of emotion for mm. me because 
you know, at the beginning of the day, I had all these beautiful friends who were with me and none of them were indigenous and they, I, I really understood, you know, that they were trying really hard and I had this beautiful wave of hope where I was like, well, people are listening. And then we started walking and it kind of just like washed over me that I was, like that feeling of immense frustration was like, we have been saying this for years. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm really appreciative that all these people are listening now. But number one, why is it my job to explain it to all of you? Mm -hmm. And number two, why weren't you listening before? And it's like screaming in this void chamber of like, you know when you're little and you're like, mom, this happened. And they're like, no. They're like, yeah, no, this happened. Mm -hmm. This happened, this happened. And no one believes you in this. And I was like, oh yeah, you were right. And it's kind of like the relief of, Yes, I am right, but also, why was my voice not enough? Totally. And I think that's the big bit that really got to me in hmm. that day is that I was like, why is it that our voices weren't enough and that we need American TV to point something and we need thousands of white people standing there for us to be heard? Why aren't we valuable enough yeah. to warrant attention, to warrant that mic? Like, why and did it have to matter? somewhere else exactly for us for, for to put a mirror like, onto and I was almost here. like I don't know if you got this I was almost like wait are you guys just looking at us as like oh yeah we have a thing too it's not just America mm. and I was like are you guys actually wanting to assess what's happening or are you just like oh America has black lives matter we probably should do some like find something in our own backyards because mm. we're not actually American mm. Mm. and are we just becoming a new token yeah, it a was token the virtue signal of the day sort of thing. Exactly, and like, yeah, that, I just got so angry. Yeah. I was like, Ugh. and I was like, I know that anger isn't necessarily productive in that moment, but then I was like, but it was so, it was a beautiful moment because I just turned around to all my friends and I was like, I love you all so much, but I'm really angry at all of you right now. So I'm just going to go stand with Ella and Kiralee over there my Aboriginal friends <laughs> and like we're actually just going to do that and I was like I love you and I really respect that you guys are standing here with me but I'm angry yeah and so I need to move away from you guys and they were like okay we get it we'll see you soon and then they ended up coming back up to me with like an ice cream and they were like we got you an ice cream and I was like nice <laughs> but it's like you know, like yeah. reconciliation can take this really different forms. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and then even with the American movement with Black Lives Matter, I'm still like, where are the voices of Native American people? Like, mm -hmm. where are the voices of First Nations people in America? Because it's, I know it's also a small percentage like here, but um, that doesn't matter, you know. That's Disproportionately the, higher deaths than... Yeah. Like, and, and women missing and murdered and things, you know, like, there's so much going on there too that that was... Yeah, you know, quite, quite, yeah, quite silenced. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of thought, like, to start with, thank you for sharing that. That was a very touching story because that's like, I remember this thing you said to me uh, last March or whenever it was about the difficulty with this problem being that without Indigenous heritage, it is a recreational issue to be protesting against for people like me mm -hmm. and the sensitivity mm. that needs to be applied to thinking that way. Yeah. Um, which has like resonated ever since and I've just sort of that's been at the forefront of my decision making about how I can best support you know communities not just indigenous stuff but other com any community that I'm yeah. not a part of be sensitive to the fact that it's it looks like recreation when you just pick up the issue because it's the issue of the day mm -hmm. and you have the privilege of putting it down again when yeah. you want to get rid of it and you've got something else to think yeah. about and um, 
yeah, that was a really meaningful thing that you shared with me then. And what you just said then was like such a beautiful example of that. And it sounds like you've got a cool bunch of friends as well who were like, yep, get it. Yeah. Or we get it that we don't get it. So yeah. see you whenever sort of thing. But even within that dynamic, you know, I walked away and it took one of my beautiful friends, Chantel, to kind of explain it to another couple of friends who were like, oh, why? And, yeah, yeah. you know, to kind of like take that on where, you know, we had this beautiful conversation the night before the protest where we were in the kitchen and where my friends was like, oh, I don't really understand it. And she asked me a question and they must have just sensed I was like, oh, I'm emotionally exhausted from all this. I don't really want to have to explain everything to you. And Chantel kind of saw and she was like, do you want me to? And I was like, yeah, I do. Cool, cool. And then she said her part and she was like, well, this is probably this and this and this and this. And she was like, I've read this, I've read that. And then she turned to me and she was like, does that feel accurate for you? And I was like, that's really what allyship looks like. Mm. It's passing the mic when the mic needs to be passed, but also being a shield when that needs to happen. Yep. And, and like taking on some of that. Of yeah. Which is exactly what you're doing, right? Like to kind of learn and then turn around and teach where you can so that it's not always the same people's responsibility to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Because it is exhausting. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I don't know if it was me and you or if it was with Ella, but we were talking about how, about the importance of lived experience and that if mm. it's not your lived experience, you're just imagining. Mm. Like you're just imagining what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, but it's not mm. your reality at all. And there's a really big difference between those two things. Yeah, yeah. It, the slavery thing in America, because uh, I've sort of thought the same thing about why the Native American issue hasn't been at the forefront, and I understand that they had a massive history of slavery and, and what have you that seems to have overtaken the need to repair Indigenous relationships. Um, but I've been reading this year some stuff, and we have we've had slavery in Australia as well. Yeah. Like I yeah. read about. Um, have you guys heard of the Queensland? native mounted police I read this in a piece of fiction and I was like that cannot be real and looked it up and I just like I was almost in tears because I found out that Queensland from a period I think it was the mid 1850s or something until early 20th century like a hundred years ago this was still going on mm. where Queensland police uh, subjugated New South Wales and Victorian whatever the original countries were, indigenous people, because who better to hunt down indigenous than other indigenous? And they preyed on existing cultural conflicts and also just the knowledge and crazy levels of extortion and, and violent blackmail. But the Queensland Native Mounted Police was one of, or I think the bloodiest cartel in Australian history and responsible for the most massacres. Yeah, and it's all so, like, I scoured the internet and I couldn't find much. But I yeah. found enough to know, like, oh my God, that's out there. That's how Aboriginal Rangers started. Yeah, that's I was going to say Aboriginal that, Rangers that's, are. Yeah. They started my to great, hunt children. My great-great-grandfather That is, like, taken families. Like that. Yeah. So it's, what we've made me feel like what we're facing in Australia is, like, it's not just the magnitude of what America is facing but it's that stuff multiplied on top of each other because it's the indigenous problems combined with the slavery problems in the one community. And in a much shorter timeline. In a way in a shorter much, timeline. Yeah. Much shorter timeline. Like, I mean, we talked about this last time but referendum to make Aboriginal people not flora and fauna was in 67. Yeah. In 67. My dad was a teenager. Like, this is not an issue of like hundreds of yeah. years ago. Like, it was 
yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Like it's just there. And then the same people who were like flora and fauna are now, you know, the only jobs they can get are the jobs that are namesaked after people who have to go hunting their own people mm. Un- mm. unless their kids were going to get killed. Mm. Yeah. And like that, like that's how my grand got caught by one of her uncles because her cousin was being held captive by the local police station. And this is stories that exist throughout. Yeah. But they don't exist beyond um, the sufferers of it or, or like the people feeling the consequences Yeah, of it. yeah. And that's why it's hard because then it's like it shouldn't be up to the people who've suffered the trauma of these things yeah. to be the ones who've got to educate. Because that's re-traumatising like, all over again, surely. Yeah, exactly. So you're like, I, I actually once, when I was in Arnhem Land and there was a group of school teachers and they were from quite privileged schools who were coming up and did this tour up on Yung country and it was like you know they were coming to do it to see if they would send their kids up to do these tours where they take with take them out on country it was aboriginal owned and operated and um not-for-profit community driven initiative but yeah they were they were up there and you know they were having this big conversation where they're like we just don't teach this stuff like we just don't teach the proper history in school like blah 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 and i was just like why not and what do you have to do to change it and they were talking about i think they were all from victoria and that they had put in these you know put, put all these things forward to change the way that they were teaching indigenous history and that they were just getting knocked back by the government but i just think that's what needs to be critically like like why and i think why like the government should be held responsible for not teaching totally the history and the big, and the big result like, is like that I have been in situations where you say stuff like what I'm saying right now and people just flat out don't believe you. You can see it in their eyes. Like you can see it like glaze over. You're like 67, my dad was a teenager and people were like, hmm. He was an animal. Yeah, and they're like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure. They're like, 60 sounds like ages ago. Yeah, and they're (laughs) like, oh yeah, no, your dad was a teenager. Yeah, sure, surely that wasn't. And it's like, I'm unvalidating everything all the time and it's like people just flat out don't believe you and I think that's what with the protest I was getting to was that I was like why is it that we don't listen like what is it about our voices that is so invaluable and so meaningless that we're not believed we're not trusted and it's like yeah we did live this we know so why aren't you believing us because the teacher didn't say it at school exactly you know and then they also learned that like the world began in like 1788 you know like time and we started at 1788 so if you just erase a hundred thousand years of history and you're like time starts now like number one you have a really warped sense of time Mm -hmm. especially comparatively with like a lot of other countries and stuff you like Long time ago was 1788. That's the start of everything. Like, mm-hmm. really warped sense of time. Mm-hmm. And then just to never have Indigenous voices included, like, and to be a small child and to be told by an adult, like, this is the way the world works and this is how it went. And then to expect people as adults to be like, whoa, I have to completely change, like, my sense of time. I have to change, like, my, sense, my, my entire understanding of history, my, my entire own family's, like, contribution to this. And, like, what is my part? And, you know, like existential crises for and everybody. It's, yeah. <laughs> and it's invalidating everyone's feelings because it's, like, a lot of the people, and this is, like, a conversation that I know is really sticky territory, but it's, like, it's painful for everyone involved when right up to 67, you know, a percentage of the population that you live with are flora and fauna. 
-hmm. Like it's painful for the people involved. It's also painful for everyone outside of that. Like it's not an easy thing. And when people invalidate the Aboriginal experience, they're invalidating their own existence as Australians as well. Mm. Because it's not as if these things happened. Well, partly they did happen in pockets of isolation, but it happened to everyone. Yeah. It was, you know, like if you, your grandparents and great grandparents were living in Australia, then it's their money that was used to hunt down children. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Maybe they were the ones who were also in sticky situations and had to go and hunt out Aboriginal people. Or, you know, they were the ones put on ships that didn't ask to be put on ships and go here. Like, it's a very, very painful history for everyone or to and have validating Domestic it. slaves. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. not... Yeah. I and the land feels it too. And that's the other thing. Yeah. Even if people aren't talking about it, even if it isn't in their, like, cognate reality, the land feels it, you subconscious, you know, like it's it's here, it's eerie, it's there, and I think a lot of people don't feel like they belong because of it. Mm. Yeah. And that's what causes, you know, the water off a duck's back syndrome in Australia, being like, ah, don't look yeah, too deep into right. it. Because everybody knows that it's not actually all right. Yeah, well, as soon as you acknowledge that it's not all right, the, I think the fear that you're talking, I think there's fear attached to what you're talking about 100%. as far as people being unwilling to validate it, but, despite it affecting them and them being, yeah. you know, um, victims of the situation, they're very different type of victim, but still yeah, the situation at large. And so there's fear attached to that and people are afraid. And this is, I'm saying this because I think this is something that I've felt certainly as a teenager, yeah. feeling like, oh my God, there's this huge black, horrible energy around Australia that I don't know how to approach. Yeah. And because of the color of my skin and my detachment from it, I feel worried that as soon as I acknowledge it and face that fear I'm gonna have this immense obligation to atone and yeah. the energy that that's gonna take is like but, but then I can't go surfing yeah. you know and it's like I think that everyone has a version of that in white Australia yeah. where they're like they know it's fucked up they know how oh like atrocious and horrific and in almost like indescribable our history is but because of that it's that whole fight, flight, freeze mechanism yeah. and everyone's just frozen going, no, I can't, I can't, I can't talk look. about yeah. it because yeah. as soon as I do, my whole life's yeah. going to change, my paradigm's going to Open the shift. floodgate and 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, but just, I mean, the surfing thing is, is also like a good analogy for it too because you're like, oh, but I want to go surfing. And it's like, yeah, because you love the land here mm. and you love the ocean here. And looking at that big, dark history and that part of it is part of you loving this country and because this country needs Aboriginal people living on it and it needs Aboriginal people thriving on it and it needs the welfare, like the well-being of Aboriginal people, you know. So if you love the beach and surfing, you also have a responsibility to country and you have a responsibility to Aboriginal people so mm. that you can go out and enjoy the surf, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's been like the biggest, um, the biggest mental block that I've had or I suppose actually the biggest motivating thing I've thought about in terms mm. of this issue as far as getting me over the line to go, actually, no, I can't be in this camp of spectating it anymore mm. because at this stage in the climate emergency, we need Indigenous conservation knowledge, mm. like, desperately. And, and leadership. We, and leadership. All, like, leadership. The depth of wisdom that it takes to... I wish there was a better verb for this, but operate this country or look yeah. after it the depth that we it's like we're trying to get it in western culture through things like biodynamics and things like you know meditation on the beach at seven in the morning and stuff it's like this is all stuff that indigenous culture has dialed in and has yeah. had dialed in for tens of thousands of years and so the end it feels like 
the answers that we need are right in front of us, but it's it's not just that we have it motivated no. communities and to share. It's like we're still just burying our heads in the sand. And it's funny because like you have all these insane examples of like what land mismanagement looks like. I mean, this time last year, Australia was on fire. Mm -hmm. And we were on fire for a really, really long time. Isn't the top end already on fire? It's been yeah, on fire all through winter. And it's just like, we're presented with all these examples of being like, this is happening. And then you go to somewhere like the Kimberley, and that never happens in the Kimberley. Mm -hmm. The only time where it happened was a while ago when there was a big marathon through it and Rio Tinto was like, no, Aboriginal people, you can't access it because we have to do the... Literally the only time where there was a major fire in the Kimberley was when Aboriginal people weren't allowed on it. And we, you know, put posters of like koalas half burnt and all that. And it's like, instead of being stuck in this space of pity, think about like, what is it that we're doing now or that we're not doing now that was done beforehand? Because that never happened. That mm -hmm. never used to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like every year we go through this whole thing and every year we're surprised. It's like, what? Mm. Australia needs management? Mm. What? <laughs> and it's like, this is going to keep happening. Like, it's not a surprise. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, think, almost I, to the tick that I you feel can. Like the reasons get farmed out, though, and they're like, you know, the the most conservative blue collars of Australia are like, yeah, but it's because of the emissions from China make the air hotter. That's why yeah. the fire's there. And yeah. it's like, uh, yeah. I don't think that we can have Or if it's like Murdoch that. papers, then it's because there's arsonists. Yep. Yep. It's yep. got nothing to do with climate or anything. Yeah. I was chatting to a lady called Raylene Brown in Alice Springs who runs an indigenous food um, business. Mm -hmm. Like, goes out on country with um, elderly ladies who um, harvest in traditional manners and so forth. And she was, she told me the difference between light fire and the fires that we've just mm -hmm. had because that always pissed me off after reading the summer bushfires and then politicians, namely in the Liberal Party, going like, oh, you know, Australia's always had fire. Bushfires always been a part of the Australian landscape. <laughs> and it's not fire like that. It's not fire when it's getting, like, raining from the sky and everything is just, like, incinerated. There's, there, it sounds like there used to be light fires where it was a controlled blaze that was just enough to... Cold on yeah. smoke. The big, the big thing that you know when, like, you watch Aboriginal people burn, and this is what I was always taught, is that the fire should always be cold enough so that you can walk through it. Mm. Like when you're burning bush around around where I'm from, you should burn it so that you can stand there. You don't have to burn and run away. Yeah, like you should be able to like stand around it. The whole plant doesn't burn, you just drop it down and then it stops. Mm. Like it should never be to the point where like you have to run away or you need to turn away. Like you should be able to stand there next to it and mm. watch it. You should be able to walk through it and catch another spot turn it off if it needs turning off you know you walk there with a stick that's how you stop it mm. you walk around with a stick and you bash it mm. to turn it off mm. like that's burning it's not an inferno yeah. yeah like last year in january i drove down well this year in january i drove down from sydney to melbourne with like the mtsd thing and i remember there's this moment where we're sna standing in the mountains and like this is down through Yorubadala, Camargo yeah, sort of area. Exactly. Yeah. And we went to this lookout and I stood on this lookout and it was just black everywhere. Yeah. And there wasn't a single sound and I just like burst into tears. And I got kind of like disoriented, took a step back off the platform and I was just like knee deep in ash. Wow. And I was like, this is not 
the burning. This is something else. This is just mm. like <laughs> uh, destruction. Yeah. yeah. You know, like you can't, like the landscape actually can't come back from that. You know? yeah. Like when you grow plants, it's like a bit of ash is nice, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Everything in small measures, you know. I hope, I mean, I hate, I hate like a hopeless optimist, but I have to believe that it will come back. It will. I've been, I was down um, in that exact area last year in November, right before it all kicked off and had a few fun days exploring and then went back down in June and the level of black, I got really emotional as well. It's like very hard to explain the feeling of it when you go through towns like Dandelong or Maniana or those places where you're standing on a road and there's houses on one side and then on the other side of the road the black has come right up to the curb and that's the road you're standing on is where the firemen were yeah. all the volunteers and you know yeah. it's like impossible to, to to appreciate the scale until you're there i think yeah yeah it's, so and it's like that's not an australian history that yeah. didn't used to happen yeah. that's not yeah. that's something modern and it's like maybe it can come back but it can't come back if it keeps happening every mm. year you know? yeah and like i was listening to I think it was um, the Curry women who were part of the Five Six Alliance, which is like really great First Nations run um, fire ma indigenous fire management and knowledge sharing and wanting to implement it on country. And they were talking about how when you have those cold fires, you know, the animals will run up to the top of the tree because they know that the fire goes down the bottom, they mm. stay up the top and then it's fine, you know, so that when these big bushfires come, the animals do the same thing, but that fire is reaching all the way to the top of the trees, so the animals have nowhere to go and it's like, maybe, you know, like, I'm also hopeful we can come back from that season, but have to learn from it and change yeah. it up yeah. and yeah people should support fire six alliance because they, they are leading the way with yeah. first nations fire management and like implementing skills and teaching mob you know are they getting um supported by the government and local councils and stuff now because i understand I that they, they were they lobbying for a long funding. time weren't they yeah i don't know i don't know what there's i know that people can donate mm -hmm. so I'm like people power everybody can go in and support them but in terms of government funding, I'm not sure what they are. That was like the weirdest, most frustrating thing to read about was like you're not allowed to burn on your land without council approval, even if you have heritage to that land or if it's just a freehold of yours. Approval, like, yeah. Sorry to anyone listening who's in council, but it's like jack shit. It doesn't mean anything. Like council can be approved. But like, I mean, like in Broome, they approved Broome North, which was literally, they flattened sand dunes and bought, built a whole suburb on it which was like under the sand dunes there was mangroves which the aboriginal council told them they were like 200 years ago there was mangroves there people used to go fishing there was crocodiles there if you dig up those sand dunes it's just going to be sand fly territory it'll be horrible and they're like it's fine you know, we don't have any historical record of this the developers already paid us forget about it and they did it and now the result is like this primary school has to have a net around it and they have to oh. fumigate it twice a day because there's yeah. so many sandflies oh. that it's not livable oh, and it's like we told you this would happen so yeah yeah um, and another thing is like the fire success came to Mullum and did a big talk and it was just really interesting just like the way that like first nations people look at things compared to non-indigenous as well especially like when we talk about council because people were like 
you know, genuinely there because they're like, we want to take guidance from you, you know, we want to support and we're here to listen and things. And then, you know, the questions were like, hey, I, I have um, 100 acres and I want to burn on my property. Like, how do I do it? And, you know, the guy was like, well, we don't have the same like fencing line like we're not looking at it like just your property and just their property down the road and we don't do it like that it's about is it the right time to burn you know and it's not just going to be constrained within your property boundary mm. you know mm. what i mean they're looking at the landscape the living landscape not just like whose place is where and who can get you know yeah yeah you're not going to do a cultural burn according to right angles yeah and, and exactly geometry. which means you've got to take that boundaries and those fences away to be able to care for country yeah. properly i read i read um dark emu by bruce pascoe this year mm -hmm. and that was one of my favorite things in that book was thinking about you know fences in all of australia and the shared agricultural resources across the entire continent and the fact that there was mutual understanding and respect of the land management involved so they didn't need fences and then just thinking about paddocks that you drive past and like how contrasting that is to the way we're doing things now which is clearly not working and so hmm. but I, I don't know like when you said like, at the start about sharing it, yeah you know? and it's funny because it's like you know we're like oh we do this to like it's funny because fences are considered like land management tools mm. it's like it's funny because like the kangaroo population is a perfect example of how like fences and clearing has <laughs> just caused the absolute opposite of what they wanted because <laughs> it's like by clearing out all these valleys and being like more space for the animals it's like no just proportionally a lot less space because now they're fighting all the kangaroos that are just like multiplying by hundreds yeah, yeah. because they now have access and it's like there was fences Clear there bands. that were trees yeah. for a reason yeah, yeah, because yeah. a kangaroo can't jump over a tree your fence no problemo <laughs> easy yeah. peasy right. yeah <laughs> it's so funny yeah, fences just keep humans out yeah and cattle i mean australia has an obsession with fences i mean like we built a <laughs> rabbit proof fence all like the length of our country like that is a pretty like i know it's not funny but that's like a really long fence. How like that's that stupid. Like that is stupid. Like if you think about it. Yeah. The Great yeah. Wall of yeah. China. Yeah. If it's that long, surely it's um. Surely there's something else this, you could do. Like. Yeah. And maybe like, like we're going to build one. Yeah. Maybe they're so obsessed with it too because they, everybody knows it's stolen land. Mm. You know, it's stolen land. Why are you so putting up all these fences and protective yeah. of it? And like stuff? It's Maybe that's mm. why, though, is because like the the more demarcation there is, the more obfuscation of responsibility. And it's like, no, nah, we chopped that land up and gave it to Johnny, mm. Dave, Belinda, and Susan, mm. and then they chopped it up 50 years later and they gave it to eight of their bloody grandkids or whatever. And blah blah yeah. blah. And by the time it gets down to you know old rolls with his square block in a suburban neighborhood the ownership of that land has been so diluted from the time it was first stolen because mm. of the fences that have just kept going up that suddenly what do you mean it's my problem like yeah. i just bought this place yeah maybe yeah. it's a sense and, of belonging like yeah. it's like this little bit this is manageable yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i yeah. can see this and it's like this is my problem nothing outside of it yeah, yeah. but everybody's huddled around the coastline you yeah. know i yeah. do think there's this real lack of sense of true belonging that most 
people living on this continent feel. You know, because everybody's huddled around the coastline, like the language you use for it is like the outback, you know, and it's got like, even all those like old Australian films and stuff, it's this real like eerie, like out in the desert, out in the outback, it's like unlivable, it's harsh country, it's because they've like destroyed you know, the connection for indigenous people to the land so they can't tell you how to survive, you know. Mm, mm, mm. But people people don't know how to live out there. But I, I do feel like in the Australian psyche there is this real like knowing that th this is stolen land. Everybody's hanging on the outskirts with mm. their little fences yeah. and don't really know yeah. how to like be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And feel like they can be here. Yeah. Which is why I think it's everybody's responsibility to connect to country in respectful ways that are not appropriative. Yeah. And maybe that's what it is, right? It's like cognitively taking all our fences <laughs> down. Maybe that's just what collaboration is. It's going, I'll take my fence down to make my boundary more porous and if you do the same, yeah. then maybe we can start to share this land as something that we're all occupying together and not like, this is my problem, this is your problem. Yeah. But yeah. rather like, this whole bit is our problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when you're out there, like I've just spent four months in the centre and driving from South Australia to Northern Territory, there's no fence on that border. But, you know, if something happens on one or either side of it, it's it's one or either side's problem to deal with. No. It's not everyone's problem because, yeah. you know, there's a state line there apparently and yeah. there's not, but there is. And the same thing, like suddenly the responsibility is just like pushed around so much that no one the collaborative opportunity is just evaporated. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you just said, Kiralee, about like connecting is everyone's obligation to go and connect and to understand. Mm. Yeah. Like that was my first trip through the centre and I'm really embarrassed that it took me 28 years to get out there. But like that was the first sort of um, pilgrimage of some description of that nature that I've had. And mm -hmm. the impressions that it's left me with have completely transformed what I thought of Australia. Like the level of poverty in, in non-coastal communities is fucked up. Like there is no two ways about it. it. Like I've been so bloody privileged to travel overseas, mainly to go surfing, in uh, a lot of developing countries like South America or Indonesia or something. And you know, you go through there and it's kind of like, you get this touristic privilege to float above it all and go like, wow, look at how this country works. I'm glad my country's not like that, blah, blah, blah. You go out to Outback Australia and like some of the, some of the destitution in, in places I drove through was like really heartbreaking. The same sort of infrastructure deterioration, the same violence in the streets and sort of like all of these symptoms of like poverty and it's something that I thought was exclusive to other countries and Australia's developed and we're beyond all of that and it's just like now it's just left my brain all liquid because I'm like holy shit we have that's all happening here and then and then pop out back on the east coast in Noosa to see a seven million dollar boardwalk with LED lighting underlated and blah 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 and everyone in nice linen clothing having a great time I'm like how, how is this council amenity and that yeah. was also council uh, yeah. amenity, like, what the fuck is happening? Because the yeah. other one's way, way, way out back in the bit yeah. we don't look at. Yeah. 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 yeah, but also it's about connecting to country, like, with the more than human kin that we have, too. And that's for everybody. Like, it's everybody connecting to nature as a living, animate 
beings, you know, multiple beings. It's, it's like, it's connecting with trees, it's connecting with animals, it's not seeing the earth as resources and inanimate objects that we can plunder. Because in the Western mind frame, like, nature is seen like that, even in a word for nature, as being, you've got human, you have nature. Mm. You know, like, we are part of nature, like, why is that even separated? And then, because of the languaging that we have where we've got it, like, you know, like, the trees and it and things like that, we don't incorporate the aliveness and the, the beingness of a tree into the language. Like, in, when we use English in the Western mind frame, we really have to reorganize the way we use our language so that, so that we can relate to the beingness in all the animate world around us. That's because that a is a problem. Point. Yeah, we only we only reserve sentience for humans and maybe your and pet dog. Maybe plant house plants now. You maybe yeah. house plants now. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Yeah, and beyond domestic animals, even like livestock, it's still it's still. You're talking about how many head of something you've got as a as a, an item on a shelf almost. It's not yeah. they're not living. Yeah, That's so true. and so it's in, it's really easy to hurt things when you don't see your connection to it. And you don't see it as a relative. Yeah. It's just a thing. Yeah. And I think yeah. also, like, and not at all to invalidate what you were saying, like, the difference in income is pretty crazy. And I remember the first time I came to, <laughs> like, I came to the East Coast and I was like, whoa, how is this the same country than where I've grown up? Like, mm. <laughs> we, have, we don't, like, Broom was very, very different when I was growing up and I came to the East Coast and I was like, holy shit, this is Australia, like, are you serious? Yeah. And I remember almost thinking, um, when I watched um, Hunger Games and it came out, and you know that scene where she's like in the train and she gets off at the Capitol and she's like, whoa, what the, and that was the feeling I got, I was like, wait a minute, who's paying for all this? And I was like, oh wait, it's us. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. our resources. We paid for all of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is what you're doing with your, with our money? Like what, with our resources, with our time? And it kind of like created this huge disconnect. So like, not to invalidate that. Like I very much agree that there's a difference. But I think also like a lot of people who visit like Central Australia or Western Australia or like those kinds of areas, they, they see poverty as something like in the area, something that's like destitute and like left to break down. But then look at the flora and fauna. Look at the animals, look at the trees and it's like actually because a lot of the questions I get is, but why do people not like fix their stuff? Why do they just let the window break? It's like, well, they're busy looking after the tree. Mm. Like when that's your value, like you don't do that. And I remember I had one of my aunties who, <laughs> she had like one of those state houses and she noticed that they tinted her windows to keep it from being too hot. And the sun was reflecting on the reflector and it was hitting like the bark of a tree and she was like nah that's not good so she broke the window so that it wouldn't shine up against the thing and then they came over and they're like for the inspection they're like you've had this house for six weeks you've broken half <laughs> no, the windows right. what have you done she's like the yeah, tree you built broke it you, built it you built it wrong like it's it's too many different little <laughs> rooms that's and it's too weird. hot in the little rooms and so like they pulled everything out put it outside and it's like that's kind of it it's like maybe we it's not just a question of acknowledging how different it looks but also asking ourselves why does why? it look like that? Well, yeah, where, mm. where was the breakdown in um, consultation? Like, why was it so inappropriate that this is what's become of it? Exactly. Yeah, I've got a mate and of And what mine. is appropriate even? 
Well, like, I, why is it that we need the walls? Why do we need the doors? Let's just pull them down anyway. Right, right, exactly. If that's what's um, culturally prescribed, then that's what needs to be respected. Yeah. I've made a mate of mine um, who has a construction company really wants to volunteer to build um, community housing and that sort of thing throughout the territory. But he knows that he's afraid to enter into it because he's afraid that he'll just get given a council mandate and they'll say, here, build this. And he'll yep. be like, cool, who'd you talk to to build it that way? And they'll be like, no, 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 this is just how it goes. This yeah. is this is the material, this is why. But there's zero community consultation and then stuff goes up and it just gets torn down. And he says, with the current bureaucracy around it, it's not worth anyone's time or the resources <laughs> to get the stuff out there. And then, like, this is funny, like, kind of self-validating things that come from it. So in Lajamani, they've just, they built a new hospital like three years ago. And they built this new hospital because the, the other one was essentially like a shed. And it was like all the beds were lined up and people could see each other. And it was like people walking in and out. There was dogs yeah, in there. Yeah, like, yeah. it was pretty cool. But people actually went to the hospital. And then they built this hospital with like all these little private rooms. It's like air conditioned and like there's like these small waiting rooms and stuff. And people stopped going there number one because it freaked them out because they couldn't see the bush because it was like there's only these like really thin sterile windows and stuff for the asthmatic patients and whatever and people stopped going there and then like the northern territory council was like we build this new hospital and there's heaps less patients so it means that the hospital has done really well <laughs> because oh, less people are coming to the hospital it's like no that's 100 percent not what happened People just entirely stopped coming. It doesn't mean that they're not sick. They were just like, no. Nah. But it's just like self-validating leap of like, we did a good job. Yeah, yeah, Go yeah. start. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, if you if those people chased up with the community that that was supposed to serve, they would find presumably more infirm people in their homes who have chosen to remain sick or injured because they prefer that over walking yeah. into some culturally insensitive building. Yeah. Yeah, I think you also have to look at like, why is it that even in your mentality, you could think to go into a place mm. and build a building without asking the people who have the lived experience of being there what you want and what you need. Like, where, what, what is this hierarchical mentality where you're like, we know best, <laughs> yeah. we'll go in and give something. Like, it's so fucked up that, yeah. that you could think that you would, you, it's so paternalistic still, you know, like that you yeah. would think that you could just decide what would be best for a community and spend all this money on it. Just full white money. That it wouldn't be, yeah, spend yeah. their money on it and, and not have people who live there decide what's needed and how it looks and how it functions. Yeah. And, and processes Like, that's just really that, weird. That really frightens me because I think that that mechanism is the powers that be who are determining that action are, are aware of this cultural problem like everybody in Australia is. They're not frozen necessarily like me and Joe standing on the footpath watching the protest going like, fuck, what do we do? Those people, I think, know that they're so close to almost a full extermination, which is such a dark mm. word to use, no, but they're so fucking close that if they just keep going especially under the disguise of what do you mean we're helping we're building things we look we're trying to give give them hospitals and like promoting the them and promoting the divide between the culture it's almost like under this guise of um, philanthropy they are completing the extermination and it's like that's the really frightening thing for me about about this this whole like 
Yeah, and what you're describing is genocide. Genocide, right. You know? Yeah. Ongoing, continuous genocide. Yeah. Right, I mean, like, that's always been what's undercover in Australian film and film projects anyway. Is that it's all like, you know. And government. It is, like, the solar generation was like, we'll take the children and give them something better. Yes, yes, yes. We will. White Australia policy, we will pay white men to have babies with Aboriginal women and we will breed them out in generations. It'll be so easy. Mm. Like all that was considered like a good thing. So Yeah. So, so how do you or how do we make the distinction between projects and investment that is perpetuating this genocide like you're saying and, and then actually trying the like reasonably positive, genuine, authentic efforts to repair how do you how do you make that distinction? Relationships. I think it's pretty clear when you ask people. Yeah. Like when you just just talk for more than five minutes. About yeah, it. and also like it's I wouldn't just walk into someone's house and, and like, start cleaning the kitchen. Yeah. Or like you know, like I wouldn't just walk into your mum's house and be like, cool. So this is I'm gonna just walk in, make dinner for everyone, rearrange the house, order up, uh, you know a renovator, redo her bathroom without yeah. ever consulting her or even asking yeah. you or That's nothing. such a good It's example. like, I wouldn't do that. And I'm like, oh, now, yeah, give me the money to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's like... Yeah, and then here's a bill. Exactly. Yeah. Like, That's a really good I analogy. wouldn't do that. Yeah. And no, you know, like no when one, the line no is... reasonable person Exactly. Would, if you're like, are. would you do that to someone else? No, then probably just don't yeah. do it to Aboriginal people. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it yeah. to people with disability. Don't do it to anyone. Let them make their own decisions. Yeah. yeah. Even if you don't like the outcome. Yeah. I think it's also mentality going from like what you know, what what like philanthropic part can I do? Like what problem can I fix instead to being like, who can I support? Like how can you use your skills to support First Nations people who have already decided what they need in the yep. community? Yep. You know, like not putting yourself as the problem fixer on top, but come up from underneath and support grassroots movements and people who yeah, are yeah, doing yeah. things you know you don't yeah. have to be the fixer yeah i love that that was another thing you said this last time was like don't stand if, if if this is a car that's being pushed along don't stand in front with a sign because you're in the you're in the way get behind it and, and push yeah. push it just push don't try and drive don't try and pick the road yeah just push yeah, yeah. so yeah. i like that coming from underneath rather than straight on top yeah. of the solution. And that means relationship building too. It means like everybody who's living in Australia is on Aboriginal land. You should know what Aboriginal land you're on. You know, you should connect with people in the community. You should just build relationships and not in a way where you're like, I want to build a relationship so I can fix a problem. I want to re build a re relationship for us. Like, just everybody should just be building relationships, mm. you know, mm. just to know each other, meet each other and so that you can learn what country you're on, what's going on in your place. Because like another like another thing is too, like something that happened lately was Tourism NT put out this campaign and it said, um, the, the slogan was, your answer to Aboriginal culture. And they've put it up on, on like um, bus posters and stuff in Sydney. This is just before NAIDOC week too. So it's like, come and experience the real Aboriginal culture up in the NT. Now, number one, they're not looking at how do Aboriginal people feel when they look at that? They're only thinking about a white gaze. Yep, They're not yep. thinking about other people. Um, you know, to have that on, on in New South Wales, who was hit first with colonisation, to be like, 
it's it's like supporting that wide yeah. Australian policy. It's supporting that idea that you can breed Aboriginality out. So let's go to the places that were colonised last to experience a true thing because you know that's some answer that white Australia needs. You know, mm. for connection is to go far away. And so what I'm saying is, no, everywhere is Aboriginal land. Your answer to Aboriginal culture is all around you. Yeah. And. It's your responsibility to connect with it and to meet people and to have conversations mm. and to stand beside people yeah. or support them from underneath. And it also yeah. like it doesn't like it doesn't have to be a painful process. Like the thing is, Australia is your land too, now. You know, like you were born here and in the same way that you owe responsibility to it. There's beautiful joy in knowing where it is that you've come from. Yeah. You know, it's like Learning about the land that you live on is like sitting down with a grandparent and listening to them talk about how they got to where they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, watching our landscape and learning about it yeah. is something beautiful and worth your while outside of anything political or, you yeah. know, it's your responsibility, but it's also your right. Yeah. And it's, it's your privilege joy. to be able to do it and it's immense yeah. joy in it. Yeah, you, you I, I, well, I've, I've found so much joy in that, like even in Sydney, there's pockets of native bush that I can go into now and I've realised like I've been going into for long enough that I am familiar with specific trees, rocks, you know, features of it and mm. I've watched them slowly develop and stuff and the sense of peace that I get now, which is only ever increasing going back into those places is like amazing for my mental health, whether I care about yeah. trying to um, embody indigenous values or not, it's just like it, it makes me feel great. Yeah. And it's a really basic first step towards establishing that relationship with the environment as a sentient being. Yeah, exactly. And definitely. Like, that is what it's about. That's how you do it. You yeah. go and you sit and you watch yeah. and you just be there. And just feel. Yeah. And I think that's kind of maybe the bit of the conversation that's missing when we talk about these things is that it's like, this is home for all of us now, regardless of how we got here. We have to find a way to move forward together in a way that's going to be respectful and make sense. And I think that's where it's really easy to discard responsibility, to be like, this is a different home that you and I have. It's like, no, we actually have the same home now. Mm. We live on the same land. We're sentient beings to the same area. We both belong to the same nature. How can we make that coherent? Yeah. You know? It's like, how do you sit down with your family at Christmas dinner when you guys are super different? You make it work. You just make it work, yeah. And that's what it's about. But that You start to make it work. I agree with you so much, but I also, I have, my brain has been perpetually scarred by Pauline Hanson out at Yulara last year when they closed <laughs> the rock walk, yeah. talking to three indigenous girls going, I'm indigenous, did you know I'm indigenous? If, if no, this is not. my land, if I'm not from here, then where am I from? And it's just, it's just like, God, you, Pauline, what are you, like, fuck. No, no, yeah. not, no. Yeah. You see these three poor girls and one of them's just like, she's like, where's my land? And the girl's just like, England? Like, yeah. do you not, not understand here. what we're talking about? Yeah. But it's almost yeah. like, it's this really bastardised approach to what you're talking about, which is, you know, acknowledging But acknowledging it, where you came from and where place. is home now is different. Home now. And this is yeah. not yeah. like an experience that's new. Immigrants throughout history mm. have done this. Italians in New York. Right, it's, that's an Italian Are they New Yorkers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. they are New Yorkers. Are they from New York? No. No. They're not. There's yeah. a difference. It's like, how do you make things work 
together. Yeah. yeah. And everybody does. I mean, you know, you go back far enough, like even in Europe, like you have ancestors who had nature-based cultures, you know, who were indigenous to places before like Catholicism came through. And like everybody does have, you know, links to their indigenous cultures. Yeah, and then and, and they were all nature-based and there is a lot of similarities to different indigenous cultures all around the world and it's that they were really close to nature yeah. you know and created meaning from that way and created relationships from that place too people can tap into their own lineage of that yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah. not foreign to anybody you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? yeah it's just a matter of digging it up and finding it yeah yeah, yeah. and like you everybody belongs somewhere and like you can belong where you are now but you can't make the place bend to you you have to find yeah. where you belong and then you have to learn how to be there it's not the other way around yeah. and it's an action like belonging is like a verb exactly you belong to the place you choose but you don't choose a place because it's the other way around Do you know what i mean yeah, like yeah yeah and the place can also choose you the place can choose you absolutely and i think like byron cops a lot of shit for this but like people around here figure out pretty quickly if they're welcome or they're not, you know. Yeah, the land does have a way of welcoming people or not. Exactly. And it's but like, then there are also things like immense privilege and resources Ooh, and things yes. that people can sort of override things, but you know, like one way or another, but I think, I think the it does come around because the psyche, the spiritual, the emotional, like it's all involved. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's probably a nice thing to wrap up on. <laughs> thanks for um for sharing with Mike and friends again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. From you guys. You guys are so articulate at um talking about this stuff and I appreciate you talking to me about it and platforming it like this. We've got some practice. Thank you. <laughs> oh yeah, what's your podcast called again? Um oh, I'm this. part of one called Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond. Is this part of Indigenous Dollars? I was gonna ask how that was going. No, it's separate, that's going slowly. And um yeah. Um it's it's not I they they're supporting me with it. Cool. Yeah. But we've had that going like ten years that show's been going. Wow. Yeah. So I mean I I more speak to well, I spoke to Nadala last week. I mostly speak with indigenous women about um, their lives and then also anything to do with parenting, motherhood, birth, um, and anything they want to share really i just like having indigenous women on the microphone <laughs> yeah that's awesome and it's out in the airwaves and that sounds like a really good way to start building mm. relationships and communicating is just like dialing into something like that yeah for anyone yeah okay awesome cool i'm gonna turn this off thanks guys. thank you wow how are you feeling how are you doing are you reeling i'm still reeling and i had the conversation a while ago and I'm still reeling from the consumption of so many evolved, complex, nuanced opinions about Indigenous culture in Australia in the 21st century from two people who are so articulate, so intelligent and, and so giving with their time and, and their words and their ideas. I just feel like I feel so lucky guys. I feel so lucky to have these conversations that are really like they're actually more than conversation. They're dialogue, you know? It's like talking about big problems 
over a sustained period of time, I feel like I get so much more out of that and my appreciation and understanding grows so much more with the opportunity to discuss the same ideas over a long period of time where Kiruli and Nadala can teach me that stuff. You would have heard me pretty much lost for words on a number of occasions during that conversation where they've just said things that have detonated in my brain and I've just gone, oh, yeah, okay, I don't know how to do words anymore, you know? And then, like, those things get to sit in my brain, they get to develop, they ferment, and they evolve my understanding over time and that's where my good fortune comes in. That's where that's my ultimate privilege. Yes, I'm white, I'm heterosexual, and I'm in a developed country in the 21st century. I've pretty much got every bloody privilege under the sun. But this one is, I think, my most valuable privilege is then getting the opportunity still, despite having what looks like the most culturally insensitive rap sheet ever, I still get the opportunity to have these conversations and have this dialogue. So Kiralee and Nadala, thank you very much again for sitting down with me. That was such a lovely time and I really did get so much out of it. I'm still, my mind is a, a buzz and a wash with new ideas and new optimism as well. I really hope that with everything that's gone on this year, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's coronavirus, we've identified values we care about and we've also been given the time to reconnect and given the time to rebuild community and really start to agree on what our true core values are and start to work towards genuine healing of the atrocities of the past, the genocide that is Australia. So that's it. I hope that you've gained something from this conversation. I hope that you're going to walk away now feeling much more equipped with a more detailed and accurate understanding of what this problem is that is plaguing our nation. And one thing, this is going to sound like a cheap plug, and I promise it's not, but because one thing that Nadala said about about the stress of having to have the same conversation over and over with people and how much she valued having that one friend who noticed and realized, oh shit, this is actually somewhere where I can take responsibility. I can liberate the stress and the anxiety involved with having that conversation because now she knows about it. She can tell other people so that they're all on the same page. And progress happens so much faster that way. So yes, this might sound like a shameless plug, but please share this with people. Please share this specific conversation with people. Don't, I'm not even going to ask you to tell them to subscribe or like it or rate it five stars or write a review or anything like that. Be lovely if they did or you did, but neither here nor there. I mean, I want to share this conversation so that I can contribute to that because, and you, you can contribute to that. Do you know what I mean? Like we, you and I can both contribute to this and do something really valuable to the entire community at large because we're all suffering this situation. So everything that we can do to move it forward at the fastest pace possible and to accelerate progress and understanding of the problem and accelerate the arrival of a genuine reconciliation and a harmonious community on this glorious country of ours that feels like a that feels like an obligation now so please share it if if you know someone who would benefit from it or perhaps stand to learn a thing or two from some powerful and articulate and intelligent women then flick it over to them anyhow that's enough for me thank you again for listening for giving this your time and attention i hope it was worth it i'm pretty sure it was if it wasn't you might need to 
think about what you do think is worth your time and attention and then maybe reallocate some stuff. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Um, I'll talk to you again later. Peace.